perhaps more interestingly, in terms of some of what we've been talking about today, they tend to be using the paraspinal muscles. So more activation in the lumbar paraspinal muscles during walking, which sort of speaks to what you call guarding. Hello and welcome. You are listening to Uncut, the podcast about how to stay surgery free and live a healthy lifestyle. I'm Dr. Tom Padilla, owner of the Doctors of Physical Therapy, It's a clinic that leads the U.S. in helping adults over 30 to avoid surgery and drugs and live an active, healthy lifestyle. If you're looking for ways to maximize not only the years in your life, but the life in your years, you're in the right place. We are committed to delivering information that will help you live life today and for many, many years to come. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Uncut. This is Dr. Tom Padilla, physical therapist, your podcast host, owner of the Doctors of Physical Therapy located in Scottsdale, Arizona. And I am really excited about today's podcast. I have a very special guest, someone who I know from when I was going to physical therapy school. She was doing her PhD research at the time. And I have followed her research since then and been applying it in practice and just seen amazing results. This is Dr. Joe Armour-Smith. She trained as a physiotherapist than it would have been in the United Kingdom, right? (laughs) Emigrated to New York and worked in an outpatient ortho clinic there, specializing in dance medicine before going on to where we met, which was USC, where she did her PhD research with Dr. Cornelia Kulig, where they were investigating how your body adapts when it comes to how it maintains posture in the trunk during walking in people, specifically young adults, that had recurrent low back pain. So I really became interested in the research at this time because these younger individuals were already showing signs of recurrent symptoms of low back pain. And that's what we tend to see in individuals as they age is it just becomes more frequent and more common and really investigating and trying to figure out why. And I love that you did that research for Mm -hmm. us, Joe. Thanks for being on today's podcast. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Great to be here. Now you're at Chapman University, correct? And your main research is on neuromechanics? Yes, exactly. Okay. And it's my understanding that that is combining biomechanics, which is the science of movement, with neuroscience. Exactly. That's right. So yeah, exactly. Biomechanics, you know, gives us an opportunity to measure multiple aspects of movement or motor behavior, whether that's how much joints are moving, how much muscles are being activated, how we how we accomplish movement. And then the neuroscience piece is looking at, obviously, how is the brain, the central nervous system, controlling that movement? And since you know, these two systems are completely interlinked, they're sort of interacting all the time in order to produce the movement that we can see. I like to look at both aspects of that. So both the movement that that happens, but also then how is the central nervous system, particularly the brain, accomplishing that movement? Absolutely. To me, that's always made absolutely the most sense because movement doesn't start at the body, right? It starts at the brain. That's right. Yes. And so that's why I've always been fascinated with this. Let's do a little bit of background. Why did you become yeah. a researcher? What drew you to this particular area of research so specifically? So I trained as a, as a physiotherapist, British term, physiotherapist in Britain, in the UK. And when I entered the profession then, I had no interest in research whatsoever. It didn't even sort of cross my radar that that would be something I would end up doing. Funny story. But then sort of I had a series of experiences along the way during my clinical career that gradually nudged me towards doing what I do now. So specifically, when I first started working as a physiotherapist, 
physiotherapist in the UK, actually in a, in a hospital in London. I was fortunate because they had a really good program there where clinicians working in the hospital could get some mentorship to come up with research ideas and carry out research in the hospital setting and get a lot of support on figuring that out. So I had nice opportunity to sort of try that out in a hospital setting. And then once I emigrated to the United States, working in, a, in an outpatient clinic, got particularly interested in back pain at that point, just because it's so challenging, I think. And it's so variable, as you know, you know, every time somebody comes into the clinic with back pain, it's a different presentation. Everybody brings these really different, very specific experiences of of how they're having pain, why they're having pain. And I just found that challenging to, to treat, to help people to work with and really interesting. And then Again, sort of being a practicing PT and and going on, as we all do, going on continuing education courses and, and, you know, sort of learning about back pain and about movement. There were some things that I felt that I was being taught along the way that didn't seem very well supported by evidence. Maybe those of us who are PTs and and other healthcare providers, you know, we we sometimes we hear things and we're like, really, is that true? You know, so I, I got kind of really fascinated in, could I actually test some of these things and see if yeah. these sort of received wisdoms or things that we think we know, whether they're really true. So that then prompted me to pursue a PhD ultimately at USC, University of Southern California, where I was fortunate to work with Cornelia Kulig, who was, who was you know, had a, a long history at that point of back pain research and looking at mostly sort of the biomechanics of back pain. So movement in, in people with, with back pain. Absolutely. So you were drawn to the challenge and you wanted yes. to find the truth. I have to ask, what did you find in your investigation of the truth? Were there things that you were able to prove and disprove or confirm or deny the things that you were taught or thought? Yes. So I can give you specifics on that. I had heard along the way some very specific patterns of motion that were believed to occur during walking specifically. Okay. This was sort of got me into being really interested in walking and back pain. So I had been taught and had heard, you know, some very specific sort of characteristics of the way that the spine would move during walking when people have back pain. And that was kind of what I set out to test and learned that we, a couple of things, the big one being, and no doubt we're going to talk about this more in a moment, it's not the same in everybody that has back pain, you know, mm-hmm. so kind of step number one is to say in people with back pain, we expect to see this movement behavior or this characteristic is is problematic. We all continue to do it, but but it's difficult because it's very individual. Um, and also that there are many things that are very difficult to measure at the level of precision that would really mm-hmm. allow us to be able to, to get the evidence for some of these things. So all of that to say, yes, the thing that got me into this in part, I found that in fact was not true. There's not like a truth to the way that... It was not. Died. That's right. The level that I had been taught it, which was very general, both very general in terms of people with back pain, but then very specific in terms of movement and, and parts of the spine moving differently, um, was not true. I did find some other things were a little bit more constructive other yeah. than just that no, it's not true. During my PhD and working with Dr. Kulig and, and building upon some work that other people had previously done, you know, we were able to show that specifically in young adults, which has mm-hmm. continued to be the group of people with back pain that I'm most interested in, that there were some changes in how they were using some of the muscles, particularly multifidus, which is the muscle that you just yeah. alluded to, this really important spinal muscle that seemed like really early on in somebody's lifespan. So we were looking mm-hmm. at 
again, young adults, you know, early 20s, even though they're so young, they've already, if they've had a history of back pain, already starting to use the muscles in in ways that were different from people who did not have a history of back pain. And that interested me because I, I think I come at this very much with the idea that if we can understand better what's happening really early on when people get back pain, which tends to be when they're young adults or even when they're teenagers, unfortunately, then we can maybe start to address it more effectively early on. I feel exactly the same way. What I'm hearing you say, and please, if it needs to be tailored at all, is that Mm -hmm. there are not gospel-like commonalities when it comes to back pain, right? Right. However, in early onset, acute recurrent low back pain with young adults, there are certain commonalities. And then sometimes what happens maybe as we go on is everybody adapts to those commonalities differently, which leads to the altered things that we might read in those individuals that have had it going on for a longer period of time. Would you say that's close to the truth? I think that's a really nice way of describing it. Yes. I think, you know, when somebody first has an episode of pain or starts to have that sort of recurrent pattern of pain that you've described, we see some some changes in the way they move, some changes in the way the muscles are used, and also some structural changes in the muscles, which we can talk about more in a bit, and, and also some changes in the brain, importantly, that happen pretty early on. And then exactly as you said, over time, when people start to have had back pain for years, decades, mm-hmm. you know, by the time people are middle-aged often, by that time, the way that that back pain has has altered the way they move, the way that they now move, the way that their brain is processing movement is going to be often very different across individuals because, you know, it is going to be influenced by a whole lot of other individual factors. And what do I mean by that? Somebody's experience, somebody's movement, what do they do in terms of using their their movement? You know, what's their job? What are their hobbies? How do they perceive pain? What's their experience of pain other than back pain? What's their family experience of pain? What are their genetics? You know, we we could go on for quite some time. Uh, about all the things that will ultimately then influence that over time. So exactly, I think over time, we almost see this kind of diverging of, of how people move given that they've got back pain. Absolutely. I think that sometimes what I have seen, because a lot of the research centers around why people have repeat occurrences. Yes. Yes. And there's a lot of research, a lot of it that you've done that shows that there are brain changes and structural changes right. that now are the perhaps root cause of the reason for the continuance, which suggests that figuring out how to treat it during a first instance and do so correctly Mm -hmm. might be able to prevent those changes from occurring down the road, which for me has always been an interesting thought because workers' comp injury, for example, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Let's say that someone has been getting back pain since they were 16 years old Mm -hmm. and they've had a history of repeat back injuries over time and then they get a job when they're 25. And they hurt their back at work. Mm -hmm. Is that the injury or is that the brain pattern changes and structural changes that have happened over time that's making that? I had that conversation with someone and it's just Mm -hmm. an interesting thought because of that. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And I mean, a way that I sort of tend to think about this, and I'm not unique in this, it's, you know, other cleverer people than me can talk about this as well, is this idea that there's sort of a threshold, right? A threshold at which pain starts happening. And many different factors, characteristics, things can sort of push us up towards that 
threshold. So somebody who's had on and off pain for a while, even during the periods of time when they actually don't experience symptoms are maybe sort of closer to that threshold than somebody who's never had any pain. So it's going to be easier to then sort of have maybe some new activity at work in in the example of the person that you talked about, or maybe some really stressful events or Mm -hmm. something that then nudges them over that threshold again. I think part of what's made it really difficult to sort of understand back pain is that thing that sort of finally tips people over that threshold might be different for everybody. Absolutely. And it's not necessarily the mechanism. Right. That's not necessarily the mechanism. It's sort of literally the final straw. But there's probably been a whole series of other things that have probably been going on over time that sort of pushed them up towards that threshold. In order to really understand that, we have to really be considering all of these multiple things that influence how people move and how their brain controls movement to really sort of understand that. What Looking at one thing is not going to help us to really unravel all of that. I couldn't agree more. A lot mm-hmm. of the times I find myself coaching my clients that I understand that you had back pain or a car accident or something when you mm-hmm. were 16 and between 16 and 22, like nothing was going on. You're feeling right. good. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden at 23, you have start having back pain, but we can't write off that original injury. Right. That's right. Sometimes those structural changes are still happening. Those brain changes are still happening over time. Yes. We've got to take yeah. into account that longitudinal history. That's yeah. right. And that can be a lot to sort of unravel and unpack, particularly when something's been around for a while and people develop, you know, movement habits. And the more we do that, the more that's reinforced in the brain and they develop psychological fear perhaps of, of, of being in pain as well. So there's, you know, there's definitely a lot to help people to manage when it's been around for a while. Absolutely. So when it comes to like neuromechanics, and we're talking a little bit about the brain and the body changes, why did you see the importance of studying both pieces together? And how do you suppose those two are linked in the chronicity of back pain? That's a great question. So answering the first bit, why do I think it's important to study that? Two main reasons. The first one, as we've already just talked about a little bit, is I think we just cannot separate the movement and the system, the systems that are that are producing the movement. You know, as physical therapists, we can observe the movement, we can measure movement, but we have to be able to understand how the the sort of the peripheral system, which is our joints, our muscles, how are those structures, tissues producing movement in tandem with the brain, mm-hmm. you know, and we often will sort of think is that the brain is being the thing that's, you know, driving the bus, as it were, you Absolutely. know, and that it's kind of telling the peripheral tissues what to do. But there's sort of a two-way street as well. Yes. You know, the peripheral tissues are giving the input to the brain and they they are also sort of driving how the brain perceives things and then how the brain modifies movement. So it's, it's, it's a two-way thing. And the only way to understand it is to look at sort of both ends of the system. But then also, you know, as physical therapists, we are influencing the brain and the, the body. You know, we, we yes. sometimes, I think, would think of ourselves more as being clinicians that influence the peripheral part, the muscles, the joints. We stretch muscles, we strengthen muscles, we mobilize joints. We do those kinds of things. We have people do exercises. In doing all of that, we are influencing the brain as well, very concretely. So I think I think it is really important for us. And again, I'm not unique in saying this, but I do think it's really important for us to understand how the things we do influence the brain because they do in a really important way. A hundred percent. A few of my classmates would make fun of me when we got out of PT school because I'm like, guys, everything is neuro-reed. Right. That's right. hundred (laughs) percent. That's right. You know, over the last few years, there's there's been a a much 
better acceptance of that. You know, there all sort of used to be the joke that, that those of us who worked with sort of orthopedics, all we sort of thought about was the tissue, right? The joints yes. and that the brain didn't matter. But I think that's really not true anymore. And I think, you know, some pretty influential, many influential researchers who one might might think of being as being people who are really focused on sort of the peripheral, the muscles, the joints, are now very much also thinking about, as you say, neuro re-education. How do we educate the brain? How do we train people? How do we have people do exercises that are targeted at a particular joint or a joint problem, but they're going to influence the brain in a in a positive way. 100%. I'm excited yeah. that's, that that's coming out because... I think it's, yeah, I think yeah. it's getting out there. I've heard a lot of people use the analogy hardware and software, right? You need yeah. both function together to have a right. functioning piece of equipment. Absolutely. That's right. And, you know, it, with many of the conditions like back pain being one, but I would argue any musculoskeletal condition is going to have a component of the brain having changed. Um, back pain is maybe the most extreme example of it for a variety yeah. of reasons, but I think it's it's true for everything, everything we, we see and treat and that people experience. Yeah. Outside of your research, one of the things that really made me start considering that a lot mm-hmm. more was actually our neuro classes and stroke rehab, mm-hmm. right? where the brain can literally have a piece of it that's dead and other pieces of it start to learn the movement right. that you want it to learn. So that neuroplasticity right. is so real. Yes. And it right. happens so quickly in the body, mm-hmm. even in a health where all the tissues are still relatively healthy. It's happening all the time, you know, whether we, whether we uh, think we're doing anything to influence it or not, it's it's a it's just a what the brain does, the central nervous system does, you know, so we can influence it. And sometimes neuroplasticity is a is a helpful thing. Sometimes mm-hmm. as you say in the in the case of stroke, for instance, you know, where the where the brain is sort of adapting. Sometimes it's not a helpful thing. Being, you know, maybe changes in how the brain functions with respect to pain and with respect to movement and sensation that are actually not helpful. But then again, we can, you know, hopefully address that. Influence it back. Right. Influence it back. Yeah. Yes. Provide the correct environment, the correct input, the correct stimulus, the correct sort of exercises, the correct um, education for people so that we can, yeah, nudge it back in the right direction. That's the non-technical description. <laughs> 100%. It's like you've got pattern A, which is your good pattern. And now you've got yeah. pattern B, which is the learned pattern that... Right. Uh, whenever you had your first back pain injury per se. And right. pattern A does not reestablish itself. That's been well established. It doesn't just go back to it. But right. we can work to or attempt to work towards reestablishing pattern A with the things that we know about physics and mechanics and Absolutely. exercise physiology and all that, which mm-hmm. is what I've centered my practice around. Yeah, no, that's absolutely, absolutely correct. You know, and for someone like you, if you understand, which you obviously you do, you understand the physics of it, you understand the exercise physiology of it, you understand the neuroplasticity of it. So that's the whole system, all of the systems working together. And then you can exactly, you can try and influence that to get it to be ultimately functioning in a way that's maybe better for joint health, for pain, etc. Absolutely. My life's work in a nutshell. Nice. <laughs> we'll see if we can prove that it changes the brain at a later date then. Let's move over to how back pain has been classified. I think yes. we touched on it a little bit earlier yeah. um, to where we're always attempting to define, right? Mm-hmm. And to categorize right. because it makes yes. it easier to, to treat. Every once in a while, there's a new like continuum or a new this or a new that. Right. And everybody gets right. on board. And then five or six right. years later, it's like, well, 
that didn't work. And so it doesn't work across the board. It's not right. across clinicians. There is a classification system recognized by the APTA that talks about instability, mobility deficit. So just for the listeners, instability is where there's too much movement in a joint. Mobility deficits might be where there's too little movement in a joint. Referred pain is where that joint may cause pain in a different place than where the actual issue is. And then then we've got radiculopathy, which is that nerve pain that that radiates. Do you believe that there are limitations to that model? And if if so, like, what do you think that they are? Yes. I think we're in a really interesting time in terms of figuring out how to classify back pain and classify how people come into the clinic with back pain. And as you said, you know, historically, there have been a number of different attempts to do this. A while back now, it was all very much based on pathology. You know, we were looking for sort of structural pathologies, disc herniation, radiculopathy would be another example of that. And although that's helpful in some people, it's not helpful in the vast majority of people because we know very often there is no structural quote unquote pathology that we can look at and know that that's causing the symptoms. And then we sort of have moved on, as you said, you know, what what sort of became called the treatment-based classification system, which was sort of looking at given a a person's pain characteristics, how they respond to movement, and based on a few sort of tests that we do in the clinic, can we sort of put them into a classification based on what we think they would be most likely to benefit from in terms of our treatment? Mm-hmm. And, and that, as you said, I think that classification system has also gone through some evolution, mm-hmm. um, several evolutions, yeah. actually. Um, and I was actually just looking at that yesterday, where they sort of now have, have simplified it pretty radically. So all of that to say, it's challenging. It's really challenging. And I think, you know, and that's just one example of a classification. There are there are many others. There are sort of classifications based on what we think the sort of the underlying pain mechanisms are. As you said, I think they can be useful because they maybe help us to recognize patterns as, as people come to the clinic, you know, and, and give us a sense of how we might start to help somebody with back pain. But I think they're limited because, as you already alluded to, they're not comprehensive. So not everybody fits into a one of these sort of classifications neatly. People can switch from one classification to another over the course of treatment. Even at the most sort of fundamental level, it's not really been conclusively shown that if we if we treat people, if we we base our treatment on having sort of put somebody into some classification, it doesn't necessarily seem to be more effective than not doing that, if that makes sense. So I think there's a lot still to figure out with the classification approach. Which is not to say that we throw it all out, but I, I think, and I think you what you reflected really well is is we sort of have been for the last few years, I think, running through some cycles mm-hmm. of, of of embracing a new type of classification and then finding out there's some limitations and then sort of moving on to something else, unfortunately. And that is difficult for all of us, particularly frustrating for people who are in the clinic trying to think about how do I best work with somebody who comes into the clinic with back pain? What's the most updated guidance and evidence for this? And it's sort of is is evolving. That's the limitations. I think we just have to recognize, this is my opinion, and I'm really interested to hear your opinion. Personally, even though it can be convenient and helpful to think of, of subgroups of people with back pain, and we all still do that. And as a researcher, I definitely still do that. The reality is when somebody comes into the clinic, that person's an individual. And again, as, as you already said, you know, the way that that person is moving, it's probably too complicated to just put them into sort of one category and to treat them just based on on whatever we think that category is. That's where I'm at right now. But I'm interested to hear where you're at with that. Yeah, I think that, so 
the benefit can be symptom reduction. There are some quick ways to reduce the symptoms yep. that the patient uh, bought That's in, quick wins, right? Yeah. But ultimately, as you said, they, they may switch in right. uh, their presentation. I know that we can get into some of the research later, but let's say that the multifidi uh, are hypofunctional or not functioning mm-hmm. in an individual. Three different individuals may have three different compensatory patterns, exactly. which is what you've absolutely alluded to. Exactly. So, we right. have to be able to understand that the outcome that we're trying to achieve is better multifidus activation with the reduction in whatever compensatory patterns exactly right. this individual has adapted to. Yeah. And that's our framework. And that within mm-hmm. that framework, is, this is what I believe, is that there's a lot of variability and that's where the autonomy of the practitioner really can shine. We need to figure out what have the... The, the truth is... The multifidus is underrepresented in the brain. We've had mm-hmm. neuroplastic change. We've had maybe some structural uh, fatty infiltrates, scar tissue adaptations. Mm-hmm. Right. In maybe the joints have been compressed a little bit. Mm-hmm. Maybe we are having some ridiculous symptoms. How can we manage all those things and correct them while restoring the true thing that needs to be restored, which is the neuromuscular control? And that's kind of how I view it. I, I view it as a continuum to where maybe that 16-year-old individual with back pain, they initially get that guarding. And mm-hmm. during that guarding phase, we get brain remapping. So the brain learns those new patterns. Over a long period of time, maybe that leads to the multifidus becoming atrophied because there's so much support from all these other muscles that the brain doesn't perceive the need for anticipatory control. And those big muscles have longer moment arms. So physics mm-hmm. tells us that longer moment arms cause greater force, which right. Joint compression, perhaps, mm-hmm. the disc compression, perhaps, which then might lead to referred pain and then eventually might lead to ridiculous symptoms. So I, I view it personally as a continuum. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah. No, I think there's a lot that's really interesting in that. Exactly. You know, I, again, you know, like you said really early on, we do see some consistent things in people with back pain. And this impairment in multifidus function is one of them. And this sort of structural change in multifidus is another one that seems to happen pretty quickly for a variety of reasons. So that I think is something that that's well supported. And, and then I absolutely agree with you. I think then people adapt to that in different ways. And then we have to sort of unpick that and figure out what that is. And is it a good adaptation or is it a quote unquote bad adaptation? You right. know, maybe some of that is, is useful and helpful, but some of it is almost certainly not. And that over time, if somebody is moving and using their muscles in a way that is not helpful, absolutely, that can then change the forces going through joints, the compressive forces, particularly relevant in the spine. And then that may well lead to more issues down the road. Yeah. I I absolutely agree with that. You know, with my researcher hat on, the struggle with all of that is it's really hard for us to prove that (laughs) because we would have to follow people over time, right? From when they get that first bout of pain, which is kind of, I get people fairly early in all of that and then follow them over years and kind of keep testing what's going on. How how is this evolving? You know, and some people are doing that. And the study that I've just been working on, we tried to do that somewhat to kind of follow people over time. But that, you know, to truly prove that from the research perspective, we would have to like keep looking at people, which would be an incredibly interesting study and keep kind of measuring how are they using their muscles now? How is the brain functioning now? And how does that sort of change as time progresses? And the other, sorry, the one other thing I'll say about that is also to kind of look really early at why does it seem to happen in some people but not others yes so some people get an episode of back pain you know it's pretty much universal that all of us will get back pain at some point it's Mm -hmm. it's just part of being human in some people they get it they have it for a while it goes away and then they're fine 
mm-hmm. you know, and it's not a problem for them over time. In other people, they get it, it goes away, and then it keeps coming back. You know, so why is it those folks who are who the people that we we need to help the most, right? You know, if you get back pain and it goes away by itself, then great. Yes. But it, it's the people who go on to have sort of recurrent problems over time that are the group of people that really need, we need to understand better and that need better help. So, you know, why why is it in some people and not others? That would be I a think. fascinating study. I would wonder if there might be some imaging of the brain that could tell us a little bit more about that. That's right. And so there has been, uh, there's been a few studies. So part of, of what me, got me really interested in, in the brain imaging specifically with back pain was there's a group out of Northwestern University, Vanyarat Kari, and his group have done some really excellent work. And they looked at people really early on in a back pain episode. So they called it subacute back pain. So they were people who'd had back pain for, I think it was between four and 16 weeks, something like that. Don't quote me on that. So pretty early on, I believe they had not had back pain previously. And they got these folks in and did some brain imaging really early on. And then followed them over time and looked at which of those individuals developed what we would call recurrent or chronic back pain, where the symptoms came back, and which of those individuals got better and were okay. And I think they looked at them a year later, and they did show some brain characteristics that were evident really early during this subacute episode of pain that predicted or that were associated wow. with the people who had chronic pain by the end of the year. And this was specifically some, some measures of what we call brain connectivity, so how the different mm-hmm. regions of the brain are interacting. So they did that. Some other groups have been able to do similar things where there do seem to be some brain characteristics that happen or that are evident, I should say, really early on, that seem to be then related to whether people have developed chronicity or not. That fascinates me. Which is fascinating, isn't it? Again, it doesn't prove what it, what this again with my researcher hat on. Yes. It doesn't tell us, did did the people who went on to have chronic pain already have those brain characteristics? Yes, true. Because to do that, we'd have to, you know, image a whole <laughs> bunch of people who don't have any pain and then follow them for years and and see who develops a first episode of pain and then get them in the scanner quickly, you know, and that's hard to do just from the logistics perspective. But certainly there is something that's evident really early in terms of brain function that is predictive of who's going to do better or do worse over time in terms of symptoms. So, you know, I think that's... There's always another question in research, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. And there's always a limitation, right? We always have to come up with, well, here's what we'll do next. Coming back to kind of what you you said in your experience, you know, it makes sense that, that people experience an episode of pain in some people, for some reason, there may be some early changes in how the brain is processing movement and pain. That then leads to sort of persistent changes in movement over time, changes in, in use of muscles over time, changes yeah. in perception of pain over time, changes in sensation over time. A very sort of complicated thing that then predisposes people to keep getting recurrences. Absolutely. And the other end of that that you and I touched on when we'd spoken previously, which I would love to eventually put as a big, hairy, audacious goal is to actually be able to look at the imaging, the brain imaging of people who have these episodes, Mm -hmm. go through some of the targeted, I guess you could call them neuromechanic style treatment approaches that we've with your research to right. if we induce, I guess you wouldn't know if it was a reversal of change because then again, right. you know, <laughs> know what their brains look like before. 
right. if we were actually able to separate those patterns of brain activity. Absolutely. Which, yeah. yeah. I mean, that would that would be really powerful. You know, and, and some people are, are definitely trying to do that, looking at so it's interestingly, a group out of University of Florida, you know, have looked at how the brain changes immediately following spinal manipulation. For instance, you know, so that's sort of that one-off treatment and, and observing changes immediately after that. Some people, I think this is really interesting, showing changes in brain structure in people with back pain. So we've been sort of talking about brain activation, right, up until right. now, you know, how is the brain controlling movement? But also we know in people with back pain, it's been shown that there are changes in actually in the structure of the brain, subtle changes, but in sort of in the amount of brain tissue in, in certain areas of the brain. Right. And, and one group were able to show that that became more similar to people who did not have back pain following a, an exercise intervention, following treatments, a pretty specific exercise treatment. So, you know, there's definitely suggestions that that based on how we work with patients and how we have them move and, and exercise that they do, et cetera, we can certainly influence influence it and, and either change it back or change it to a more healthy pattern, a, a pattern of behavior and movement and structure that we might think is more, I hesitate to use the word healthy, but healthy, optimal. Yeah, optimal for that person. Optimal we, for that person. That's a great way of putting it. Absolutely. Yeah. I know. So on your website, backpainresearch.org, it's got probably 30 plus articles that you've either mm-hmm. led or been a part of. And there were some specific ones on there that yeah. um, I'd love for you to weigh in a little bit on. Sure. Um, we've yeah. talked a lot about back pain and walking. And I know yes. that's, that was like kind of, kind of your hallmark. But the four, and then we could just kind of uh, go from there, is, is why yeah. do people with low back pain walk differently? Yeah. Um, you did a study on pregnancy. Yeah. You did a study on the effect of the paraspinals. And then motor cortex adaptations in any order, like how chat about them. I'd love to. I'm going to highlight maybe the first one and the last one and talk a little bit about the pregnancy study also, which with the pregnancy study, I'm going to give full credit to the person who led that study, which was Jenny Bagwell. Um, But let's, let's talk about the first one that you mentioned. I was involved in doing what we call a systematic review. So as you know, that's when we sort of pull together all the evidence from multiple studies. So we looked um, with a group of other researchers, we looked at across multiple, multiple studies, what is all of the evidence for how people with back pain walk? So right at the very beginning of this, I was sort of saying, you know, I don't think it's necessarily very useful to just talk about people with back pain as if they're one sort of big, um, what we'd call homogenous group, right? Like it's all the same. But in this study, we sort of did that to see, are there certain characteristics in people with back pain, regardless of sort of what kind of back pain it is, are there certain characteristics that we tend to see when people are walking? And by doing a systematic review, that allows us to take the evidence from multiple sort of smaller studies and combine it so that it ends up to be quite powerful information. You know, so you end up with sort of hundreds of, of people included in the data. And what became evident in that was that there were some consistent characteristics in people with back pain when they were walking compared with people who did not have back pain. They walk more slowly. So when you sort of just ask them to walk at whatever pace feels comfortable, they walk more slowly, they walk with shorter steps. But then perhaps more interestingly, in terms of some of what we've been talking about today, they tend to be using the paraspinal muscles, so the lumbar 
paraspinal muscles more. So more activation in the lumbar paraspinal muscles during walking, which sort of speaks to your sort of what you call guarding, you know, so overusing potentially those muscles during walking. Walking is a pretty low level activity, as you know, for the for the spinal muscles. They don't need to be highly active. You need a little bit of activation, but not too much. So it was interesting to see, you know, across multiple studies. And I will say this is consistent with what I've seen in my most recent study in people who have particularly more severe pain that they will tend to activate the paraspinal, specifically the erector spinae, so not multifidus, but the other muscles more than people who do not have back pain. In my most recent study, again, we've been looking at young adults and these sort of differences in in use of the the muscles during walking are most evident in people who have more severe pain. If you take the whole group of them and compare them with people who don't have back pain, you don't see much. When you look specifically at the people who have more severe pain, they clearly are using their muscles in a different way. So I think that adds a whole other kind of layer of complexity, right? And it completely correlates to sometimes what we see in clinic here. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Simple palpation test, which I believe you taught us in lab. Right. Yeah. 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 Like mm-hmm. You can literally feel that, let's say that it's a chronic uh, on the right side, the left, right. the left multifidi might fire and you can palpate that. Yeah. And on the right side, you might feel hardened paraspinal. Yes. Right? And you feel right. a hypofunction of, of the multifidi right. basic movements, leading yeah. you to think that something is activating, but it's not the multifidi. Exactly. So that, you know, that seemed to show up across people with back pain, across groups of different people with back pain. And, and just, you know, again, anecdotally, in my more recent study, that is true, even in young adults, you know, so the recent study, the average age, I think I'm correct, is 22. So these are really young, from yeah, my yeah. perspective, they're really young <laughs> people. So that that was that study. So the systematic review, I'll talk briefly about the pregnancy study. So this was some work led by Jennifer Bagwell, Jenny Bagwell, who's at Cal State University, Long Beach now and some some other collaborators that worked with her. And she's done just some lovely work looking at pregnancy and trying to understand how people who are pregnant, going through pregnancy and then post-pregnancy, how that alters the way they move. And she's also looked at gait, at walking. And part of the sort of the the rationale for looking at that was the fact that, as as you'll know, many pregnant people experience back pain, yes. pelvic pain during pregnancy and also after pregnancy. So sort of trying to understand why that's the case. And she did a lovely job of, of recruiting individuals into the study, I believe it's during first trimester, and then measuring them at different points during the pregnancy and then after the pregnancy. So whereas we were sort of just saying it can be really hard to kind of figure out what's going on over time, she did a really nice job of pulling people into the lab multiple times during their pregnancy and looking at how things changed. And she, I think found some, a couple of really interesting things. She's had a, a couple of publications now based on that study. One being looking at people who had more significant back pain. In general, they were not using their hip as much during pregnancy. So they were kind of different strategies of moving. And part of that was reduced, what we'd say work, reduced use of the hip during walking. She did show some differences in muscle activation. But I think particularly interesting was some of that appeared to persist after the pregnancy was over. So in the in in the postnatal period, after the person had given birth, I can't remember sort of what the time frame was in terms of the postnatal period, but but bringing people back in to be assessed 
following the pregnancy, when they were postnatal, some of these changes remained. So again, that would really speak to some changes occurred and it doesn't necessarily just go straight back to normal, yeah. quote unquote normal, when the pregnancy has ended. Even though, you know, we might think, well, it's normal for somebody to move differently when they're pregnant, obviously, because right. they have a load you know, exactly. in, in front of them that's not normally there. Um, and some other, obviously, physiological changes, but that does not all just revert back to the way they were before, after they've given birth, you know, and then, so then obviously the interest is, do some of those changes then predispose people to go on continuing having back pain yeah. in the post period? So that I thought was really interesting and, and fits really well with sort of what you've been saying in terms of persistent changes in movement. And then finally, maybe if I could just talk about the one that you mentioned, which is the motor cortex adaptation. So this was a study that I was fortunate to do with Beth Fisher, Dr. Beth Fisher at USC. So she's really someone who I think has really been influential in getting this message out about neuroplasticity and neuroplasticity and how important it is in all kinds of conditions, including what we would think of as being orthopedic conditions. So we actually looked at older adults in this study and we were looking at really healthy older adults. So older adults who were sort of aging really successfully in terms of their okay. activity and their movement and comparing them with younger adults. And we were looking at how is the brain controlling what we call postural control. So as you already mentioned, the anticipatory postural adjustments. So the little movements that we make when we know we're about to move and we make them just before we move in order to sort of stay stable. Right. So the example, and actually sort of the, the way that we looked at it in this study is if someone's standing and they're about to raise an arm quickly, normal, healthy sort of patterns of behavior and movement are that right before we raise our arm, some of our trunk muscles, some of our spinal muscles activate so that when we do raise our arm, we stay in a good position. We don't fall over. Our spine stays in a good position. That's our anticipatory postural adjustments. We looked at that in older adults. We looked with specifically also at the hip muscles and the trunk muscles in this study and then looked at how the brain mapped those muscles. So we use TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation, which allows you to sort of map in the brain, in the motor cortex, where those muscles are represented. And we saw really interestingly in these older adults, changes in, first of all, sort of the pattern of muscle activation that they used mm -hmm. during the anticipatory postural adjustment. So they tended to use the hip muscle less, glute med, became sort of much less important for older adults. And in the brain, we saw changes where the sort of the, the organization of the three muscles that we looked at were mapped differently in the brain in, in older adults. And actually, interestingly, in that study, that appeared to be an adaptation that was a quote unquote good adaptation. Because they were all healthy. Because they were all healthy. And in particular, we, we asked those adults about, the older adults, about whether they had had any falls. Some of them had, some of them hadn't. I mean, they were, again, they were all kind of very healthy older adults. In order to be able to participate in the study, they had to be able to do quite a lot of activity and manage that. So they were fundamentally healthy and active, but some of them had experienced falls and some hadn't. And it seemed like the ones who had the more pronounced changes in the way the muscles were mapped in the brain were actually the ones who had not experienced Interesting. Which was completely counterintuitive and not in any way at all what we expected. And it sort of took us a little while to, to think about that. And, and the way that we sort of started understanding that was that it seemed like maybe in this instance, the, the way that the brain had adapted was a good thing. Yeah, it was a, absolutely. It was a useful adaptation, you know, and maybe was sort of the brain adapting to a muscle in the periphery, right? The hardware being not as good as it was. So the software then adapts to use the hardware 
somewhere differently in a better way. If that makes sense. Yeah. Well, because you have those natural declines in strength and power. Right. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. So maybe, you know, and the people who are doing really, really well, maybe the brain has actually made a good change. That was sort of somewhat preliminary. We're working on trying to get some funding right now to explore that in a little bit more detail and look at when we look at sort of specific characteristics of the hardware, like the muscle strength, et cetera, does that seem to relate to then how people's brains have altered with aging and over time? So that is ongoing, but I think it's a very just interesting observation. Absolutely. What's next on the docket for you then? That one for sure is exploring that because that was kind of a, a little bit of an unexpected finding in terms of maybe it being a good adaptation. You know, now we have to kind of get to the bottom of why has that happened? So that involves exploring the muscle characteristics a little bit more and figuring out, you know, it maybe that happens in the people who have, let's say, a weak gluteus medius and their mm-hmm. brain has made this trans this transition to just not using that muscle as much, yeah. which makes mm-hmm. sense. Kind of in the back pain realm, I'm finishing up a this sort of big study with young adults where we've looked at biomechanics, we've looked at motion, we've looked at anticipatory postural adjustments, we've done a whole bunch of brain imaging on these folks, and we're now following them over time. So we get to follow them for a year. And by follow them, what I mean is we're sending them surveys every couple of months asking about their symptoms, back pain symptoms. Hopefully by the end of this, we've got about another year to go until everybody's finished with that. Hopefully by the end of all that, we'll be able to answer the sort of the question, do the brain characteristics that we see in people with back pain and the the movement in in some or all of these people, does that appear to be good in terms of the way their symptoms develop or bad? So it's a little bit like, again, is it a good change or a bad change? Is it a helpful change or or a maladaptive change? Given that we know, as we've already talked about, that there's a lot of variety in how people adapt Some of those adaptations are probably helpful, some of them not. So we can kind of start to tease that part a little bit and see, you know, maybe in the people who do better over time, we see patterns of adaptation that are actually helpful. Yeah, I guess the the next natural question would be for how long are they helpful? That's right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, in this this study, we're only following them. It's a total of 18 months, which is obviously in the big scheme of things is not very long, but it's kind of as long as we could do. But yeah, yeah it's a long right. study to keep people engaged for that's that. That's right. You know, and, quite and a feat. Thank, you know, huge thanks always go out to our research participants who stick with this and they come into the lab and they answer all of our annoying questions and, you know, they <laughs> give up a lot of time and effort to to participate in all of this. So, um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's very important research. And so my hat's off to you and those people as well. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. So if you were to draw on the entirety of your knowledge, yeah, I know we're drawing Goodness. very big well now. <laughs> What might you think is the is the gap in current current treatment methods? Mm. And like, what would your off the cuff be, or how you think we might attack that? That's a great question, and I would love to flip that question back around on you, but maybe we can do that another time as well because you're in the clinic, absolutely, people every day. I think again, where I'm at in terms of sort of gaps in current treatment methods, I'm not sure that the problem, if you will, is a gap in methods. I think it's a gap in how we apply those methods. So I think you know, as as PTs mm-hmm. and as other healthcare providers, I think we probably have a pretty good range of methods, yes, things that we can do, and we know that many of those things. Can can be helpful in the long term or the short term, whether it's hands-on treatment, whether it's exercise, whether it's neuromuscular re-education, all of those things help. I think the gap is us really knowing when to use those different approaches on different people. Yes. We have a sort of a big toolbox. Which tool do we select to use and when on any given individual that comes to the clinic? That's the really 
tricky part that that is still we still need to learn more. I think to get I, that. I think you've nailed it. I think the mm-hmm. same thing. I think that it's not that there's a giant gap as much as there is of a better understanding, a deeper well yeah, yeah. of understanding things that we already know. That's right. Exactly. And I think, it, unfortunately, it's complicated, right? It's, it's, there's one thing that we've talked about today is that it's Absolutely. complicated. That makes it really difficult. But, you know, for clinicians, practitioners like you who are out there who are really getting to grips with all this stuff, I think it's, you know, what, what really sets people like you apart is really being thoughtful about for that each individual that comes in, what what is going to be the thing that makes the difference as opposed to just doing the same whatever on everyone. One thousand percent. We know for sure that's not going to work. Yeah, we've proven that one. Right, that's right. I think we can put that one to rest. So I think, you know... Without people like you, Joe. Well, I, you know, I think that's as a profession uh, and as more generally as, as all healthcare providers that are trying to do better jobs at, at helping people with back pain. I think that's kind of where we go next, I hope. Let's take it there. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would love to do a reverse interview with you uh, someday in the near future, Joe. Sounds good. Yeah, I get to pick your brain. That'll be yeah, fun. I've thoroughly enjoyed this today. Thank, thank you. you so much for your yeah, time. Yeah, no, thank you. It's been great. Yeah, so looking forward to having you back in the future. Have a great day. Thanks a lot. You too. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast with Dr. Joe Armour-Smith. A big thank you to Dr. Smith for taking the time to discuss with us what the current research looks like in back pain and what future treatments might look like. It is my hope that exploring treatments that use a lot of her research will help thousands and thousands of people avoid unnecessary surgeries, avoid having to go down the route of just accepting that they have to be in pain for years and years to come. And I can't thank Joe enough for being on today's podcast. If you want to know more about Joe or the research that she's done, please head over to backpainresearch.org. You can read all about her. You can read about her research. You can see the studies that she's done alongside with some other brilliant minds in neuroscience, biomechanics, back pain, you name it. I'm really looking forward to our part two interview, which we're scheduling here in a few months. Make sure you tune in for that to make sure that uh, she can interview me on how I actually apply this in clinical practice and the results that we see. It should be a great conversation about how I can improve the uh, treatment direction and approach that I currently use or how some of the things that we're doing might actually be exactly what the research says is needed and where we can go from there. Again, this is Dr. Tom Padilla with the Uncut Podcast and owner of the Doctors of Physical Therapy in Arizona. And until next time, get out there and live life today.